1: Hello and welcome to the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light onto hidden worlds of money and power. I'm Tom Wright, and on this week's episode, my co-host Bradley Hope is delving into the mystery that is Jan Marsalek. Marsalek, an Austrian businessman, was first wanted in connection with the enormous financial fraud at German payments processor Wirecard. But since going on the run, even more shadowy links have emerged, including those connecting Marsalek to Russian intelligence. To shed light on this crazy story, Bradley spoke to Dan McCrum, an investigative reporter who unmasked the fraud for the Financial Times and went on to author the book Money Men about the Wirecard scandal. Over to Bradley and Dan.
0: Welcome, Dan. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me along. You spent a lot of your time these last few years on the Wirecard scandal. Are you at the point yet where it's starting to die down or do you find like every week or so you're still getting a call, you're still having a conversation related to it?
2: People keep popping up with new information about Wirecard. It's one of those things, I think we've talked about this before, it's after you write the book about something, then really interesting people get in touch because they've seen it. Like, oh, hey, let me tell you about this thing you never knew. But also, the main bad guy is still out there. Jan Marsalek is on the run. Maybe in Dubai is the latest we've heard. And so, I don't know, I mean, one of the most recent things is Somebody sent me a picture of a guy by a pool in Dubai at a very posh hotel, which really does look a lot like Jan Marslech, or at least that uh, wanted poster of him.
0: Amazing. What's the kind of like current status of the Wirecard case? Can you just bring me up to speed on where everything kind of stands, even with the legal cases in Germany and everything like that?
2: Okay, so Wirecard, once worth almost $30 billion, went spectacularly bust, in the summer of 2020. Bunch of investigations, German parliamentary inquiry, and in Germany they are currently prosecuting three people. The former chief executive, one of his top lieutenants, and somebody who basically has turned state's witness. They are also going to prosecute now, finally, they've said, the former chief financial officer. This is a guy called Burkhard Ley, who was in charge of the accounts for a decade. During a long period where most people, certainly I think, the books were cooked. So it was a bit of a concern and the German authorities seem to have finally decided that they might start prosecuting him. But that's going to take a while because the German system is very slow. The CEO, Marcus Brown, he's been on trial for over a year now and that's going to continue well into this year. But we've also got another trial happening at the moment in Singapore. So there's a this sort of very loud, boisterous Brit called Henry O'Sullivan, who was the best friend of Yam Marsalek. The history of Wirecard, it was a payment processor, and there was a lot of money laundering going on. And Henry's specialty for a long time was moving money for gambling, online poker, stuff like that. But he was always in the shadows, and there was always this question was he doing Jan's bidding? Or maybe, actually, was Jan Marsalek doing Henry's? And um, he is on trial in Singapore on actually these, what sound like really minor charges, sort of abetting the forgery of documents. But these were quite key documents that were central to the whole fraud. And um, his trial has been happening in Singapore. They had a brief trial last year. They've just heard from the prosecutors... And the judge this week essentially said to Henry O'Sullivan and the other guy who's on trial with him, Sounds like you better testify in your defense. And so they're going to go away and then they're going to have the second part of the trial sometime soon. And we might get to hear from Henry O'Sullivan himself.
0: You know, I, obviously, I've uh, read the articles, I read the book, I watched the documentary, which I recommend to everyone. But um, sometimes maybe the average person who was just reading the articles you were coming to realize the full depth of what was going on. So their experience as well was maybe even initially reading the articles was like, this is a company with a problem rather than this is a problem company. If you look at everything you know now and all of the work you've done, at what point was it a complete fraud?
2: So I think Wirecard is one of those examples where small crimes which go unpunished become much bigger crimes. And Wirecard's history was in laundering money. So back in the noughties... It was the go-to payment processor for online gaming. If you had a gambling website, you probably used Wirecard. And over time, the amount of money laundering related to that really increased. But then the US authorities started to crack down on that. And so it became more dangerous. A lot of it went away. And there's this key moment in about 2009 where one of the guys inside Wirecard simply gets up and leaves with the best clients. So he walks out the door and all their money goes with them. And it's at that point, I think, that the fraud really starts properly. And it's not that they set out to become this huge, empty shell of a company. They were just trying to hit the numbers, try and keep the growth going. And I remember one of uh, the people involved, he told me sort of Jan Marcelek, this whiz kid, would have been about 30 years old then, had basically just been made... Chief operating officer. You know, the right hand man of the chief executive, Marcus Brown, who was 10 years older than him. They're both Austrian. Marcus, I think, was a bit like an older brother to Jan. And Jan Marslik would say to people, We've got to do it for Marcus. We've got to keep the share price up. And that is the moment where they went from money laundering to fraud. And they carried on doing both for a very long time. But the thing about fraud is, Every year it has to get bigger because you've got to fake last year's profits and then you've got to grow a bit more. And so the fraud just became this sort of snowball rolling down a hill.
0: And is it clear now at what point Marcus was looped into that? Is that clear yet?
2: So Marcus Brown's a very interesting character. He would never take notes. Or if he took notes in a meeting, he would tear them up at the end and drop them in the bin. He didn't really use email. He liked to call people into his room to have a conversation. And he and Jan Marsalek communicated all the time. You know, people would joke that they were like a married couple, certainly like brothers. But what happened is all of those messages were on Telegram and they've been lost. So it seems very unlikely to me that Jan Marsalek, on his own initiative, went off and did all the dirty work. But that is the argument that Marcus Brown is making in court. He was duped. He was a victim. Now, I don't believe that for a second, but maybe it's true.
0: I guess the, the one question is, if he was a true 50-50 partner in this, why didn't he escape like Jan did? If he knew this was all going to happen, maybe he could have you know, hitched a ride on the private jet <laughs> with Jan.
2: So here's what I think the deal might have been. Marcus Brown was the biggest shareholder in Wirecard. He was worth more than a billion. And so he had the prestige, he had the stock, and he had deniability. So I think Jan was the one who was allowed to sort of take money out the side door. And a lot of money disappeared, and we don't know where it's gone, by the way. I mean, easily more than a billion euros. But because Marcus had that deniability, and he also had a family, he has a wife, he has a daughter. Think about his calculus. He's sort of 50 years old, he's got a kid, and he knows that the German system doesn't really hand out super long prison sentences. And he's got a lot of money sopped away, let's assume. You probably go, do I want to be on the run for the rest of my life? Or am I going to hang around, fight this as best I can, and see what happens? Jan Marsalek is very different, because he fits the profile of a spy extremely bright, extremely talented, has that ability to sort of code shift. One day he'll be talking to top executives, charming investors. The next, he's hanging out with nightclub owners and mobsters, and they all think he's amazing. Speaks multiple languages. His French is perfect. His English is perfect. He has no real close family. No wife, no children. He's the guy who could get on the private jet, fly off, and live life on the run.
0: I mean, he seemingly has a, almost a different moral compass than Marcus in some way, you know, in, in the sense that he was actively embracing this, like, shadowy side of things, right? Is there anything in his the story of his life that explains that to some extent? So actually,
2: when I look at the two of them, Marcus Brown is the one who seems either he is totally deluded... Or he's a stone-cold psychopath. Because as Wirecard was collapsing, Marcus said to the people around him, his driver, one of his close few friends, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. You should go and buy Wirecard stock, borrow money if you have to, because everything is going to be fine. And at that point, surely, absolutely, he knew what was going to happen. And this, in that viewing, was a way to firm up his alibi. And what sort of person does it take to do that? Jan Marsalek, however, I think is a bit different. Because time and again, you get the sense of this kid who is out of his depth. And he's making things up as he goes along. Turns out he's really good at it. Total improviser. He skips out of high school to join a tech company. Ends up at Wirecard. But he basically is very quickly promoted beyond his ability. Because he has this relationship with the CEO. And he's only ever really worked at one place. And I'm not sure he has any actual transferable skills. So I kind of see Jan as this person who, without really meaning to, becomes trapped in this life of fraud. He's got to maintain it. He has to maintain appearances. And also, he starts working at a company where there's a certain moral ambiguity. Can we make money? You know, money laundering. There was a lot of well, it's got a grey area, right? That sort of thing. That you could see as a sort of a slip sliding into other crimes. And so for me, Jan Marsalek is a poser. He's a chancer. But he doesn't strike me as just that sort of stone-cold kind of guy that Marcus seems.
0: You know, the thing that's fascinating about Jan Marsalek is, in, in a sense, he was involved in all this sort of pseudo-espionage stuff that turned out to be a lot more consequential over time, like... He was connected to the Wagner guy in some way. You know, was he offering them another service, for example, like the use of Wirecard's international processing network or something?
2: So let's be clear. This is one of the things where we don't have complete clarity. We do know that Jan Marcelek liked hanging out with spies. There was this Russian mercenary who was part of his gang, who used to be a regular visitor at this sort of Enormous mansion in Munich opposite the Russian embassy. And that's the person who took him to Syria for a little walk around after uh, the boys had cleared ISIS out of the area. That's what Jan Marsalek liked to do for a holiday go hang out with mercenaries. And so there's definitely that element of it. And what isn't clear is the evolution of him from being a chancer or a useful guy who is being used by Russian intelligence. And at what point he actually just became an outright spy. But so he does have these spy links. And now fast forward, Jan Marsalek has disappeared initially to Russia. A bunch of reports place him in Moscow. And then in the UK, five Bulgarians were arrested, accused of spying for Russia. And so just last year... The prosecution starts, and we can't talk too much about the details of that yet because it's sub-Judas. But prosecutor stands up and says, these guys were spying for Russia. And the person who was running them is Jan Marsalek. And that's kind of wild.
0: Yeah, it is wild. I think sometimes when you're investigating something, you keep looking for almost like a, a very clear, rational series of steps but in reality, people are kind of much weirder than that. And so maybe Jan was actually just a pretend spy for a long time or like a spy fan. And then one day he became a real spy, you know, because and, and that was the way he got into it. By being a super fan, he became actually kind of useful and and they felt like they could trust him, you know, but that is such a twist. I mean, that's that's a whole different level of being a spy than sort of even providing a service to criminals and, and, and other espionage organizations, Can you just tell the story, though, just because it's so much fun, of what happened when Wirecard was falling apart and Jan took off? Okay, so let me set the scene.
2: Wirecard is under a lot of suspicion in 2020. The Financial Times has published a bunch of articles that say, the profits are fake. Here's the evidence. There's this sort of growing sense that it's all going to come to a head. And as far as I'm concerned... We have made it very clear that there are crimes happening here. And there's a big investigation by an audit firm. A report comes out. Everything is coming down to this one day. Can Wirecard release its results? And as part of this, what people have begun to realise inside and outside the company is that they have this weird system where all their money is supposedly in two Philippine banks, 1.9 billion euros. Which is kind of nuts, right? Like, why is a German financial institution sending its money all over there? Wirecard claims that there's a lawyer looking after this money. So they go to meet the lawyer and find out what's going on. So you have this moment where this gang of very sober German lawyers and accountants and other people show up in the Philippines and they go to the penthouse office to meet the lawyer, the guy in charge of all the money. And when they walk in, one of the first things they see is his YouTube studio. And it's got a little plaque on the wall saying he has 100,000 subscribers. And this is the guy who, while also holding on to a couple of billion euros for this German bank, is also giving advice on how to get divorced, what to do in cases of adultery. So the cracks are starting to show through. And this letter appears in Germany saying, we've looked into it and the accounts don't exist. And there's a couple of days while the German authorities getting their heads around this um, before Wirecard tells the world. It tells the world and it very quickly collapses. The whole thing is a complete fraud, a total sham. And weirdly, the German authorities are not in a hurry to arrest anyone. So Jan Marsalek waltzes out of the office whistling and he tells everyone, I'm going to go and sort this out. It's all a horrible misunderstanding. I'm going to go to the Philippines. And so, by this point, most of the world's press are looking for Jan Marsalek. And so it very quickly transpires that there is a flight manifest, immigration records, and they show that Jan Marsalek arrives in the Philippines one day and flies out to China the next day. But then the Philippine authorities have a look at the CCTV. And Jan Marsalek wasn't on the plane. The whole thing is this fake trail that has been laid by somebody for his benefit, to hide his real escape. What he actually did is he got a taxi to an airport just outside Vienna, this little airfield really, and he gets on a private plane, hands I think about 8,000 euros to the pilots in cash, and he flies to Belarus. And that was the last time we know definitively where he was, because he hasn't been seen for sure
0: since. And then there was a big sort of reveal from Bellingcat, right? That perhaps he went on to Russia?
2: What happened was Jan went from Belarus to Russia. And Bellingcat came out with a whole load of data which showed, actually, he'd been flying to Russia on and off very frequently for several years. And sometimes weird stuff like he would fly to Moscow for a few hours late at night and then would immediately fly out again, getting instructions, dropping off a present, who knows? And then, um, so the Dossier Center, uh, Khodorkovsky's guys, they come out with pictures, a video maybe, taken from a distance, and it's quite blurry, of Yan Maslek in Moscow. And they even have pictures of what is said to be his fake passport, or his new passport, although it's a bit on the nose. I think his name is Herman Bazanov, which kind of suggests the Russian guy looked at him and went, Herman the German, that'll do. Whether or not that is actually his real documents or another false trail, I don't know. But it definitely places him squarely in Moscow.
0: For a period of time, Moscow, and then the most recent information how did that come about that he's in Dubai?
2: So in December, the Wall Street Journal reported that Jan Maslek is in Dubai. I mean, I don't know what they're sourcing. Is on that. I mean, they've printed it very confidently, and it kind of makes sense because Dubai is where all the Russians are right now. It's one of the few places you're allowed to go if you're um, potentially doing military service, and it's one of the few places which seems open to Russians spending their money.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I just would love to know what he's up to. You know? <laughs> so, Jan, if you're listening, we're we're here. We're ready for you to come on the show.
2: I mean, it would be fascinating to talk to Jan. Yeah, I mean, because. What on earth is he doing now? Because he's not a guy who can sit on his hands, I don't think. But how do you make yourself useful when your cover is blown and you're one of the world's most wanted criminals?
0: Well, I suppose my my guess would be he he still has skills for money laundering, right? He knows how the whole international payment system works. He has some experience with it, some practical experience. So he could set up structures and oversee other people. Maybe he's just, you know, sitting in an office there consulting on structures <laughs> Or how to move money around to all these pseudo Russian oligarch kind of characters or something I don't know,
2: yeah, I mean, I guess evading sanctions, structuring paperwork is probably quite an in demand skill in Russia right now,
0: yeah, I mean, maybe it's also just r and r you know, maybe he's just it's a bit of a lot of stress for him these last few years, and he just he can't really go to the beach in Greece, for example, so Dubai is his only choice. It's amazing how Dubai is, on one hand, it has this reputation, you know, British people like to go there for vacation. It's, you know, a shopping paradise and hotels. But at the same time, it has this huge underworld aspect to it. You know, Afghan drug lords and Russian oligarchs now and anybody really, I mean, until recently, they they seem to allow almost anything except for terrorism finance to flow through those banks. And so it's I'm not sure if they're doing it on purpose, but they really created a sort of, you know, what what was the bar called in Casablanca? (laughs) That kind of effect, you know?
2: So my colleague Miles Johnson has just done a podcast about the super cartel that was being run from Dubai. And I think he likened it to the bar on Tantooine in Star Wars, where you walk in and you've got all the lowest forms of life in the galaxy sort of trading and up to no good. And yet maybe Dubai hasn't done it on purpose, but you know... Sure looks like they've made it a very friendly place for criminals to go. And I think it seems like the unspoken rule is no violence in Dubai and everything else, that's fine.
0: No violence, no terrorism relationship because they were stung by the whole 9-11 experience where actually a number of people were from the UAE in in that terror attack and, and used the banks. And you won't really find drugs existing in Dubai. There's not drugs there, physical drugs, Mm. but there's all of the business of drugs. There's just no drugs, you know? And I'm sure there are some drugs there, but in general, it's it's a well-known thing that it's very hard to obtain drugs in Dubai. Maybe it's in a sense, kind of like Wirecard, where they allowed this to start happening years ago, and now it's happened to such an extent that to unwind it, to clean out all of the Dubai banks of this stuff, would make them insolvent, you know, they became dependent on it to some extent. And they never cooperate with international law enforcement except on really special occasions, right?
2: What well, they're kind of interesting in that I think they can be shamed. They're very sensitive to suggestions of bad things happening in the UAE. They got put on the grey list and they're desperately trying to get off. Uh, that's the money laundering grey list. And there's a lot of conversation in the UAE you know, with the banks, all about consumer fraud and knowing your customer and, you know, putting in place all these processes, which is kind of a weird sort of layer where they're all operating and acting like big, clean, reputable financial institutions. Yet you have that fundamental thing where we seem to welcome a lot of dirty money and don't ask questions. One of the weird parts of the Wirecard story is that... The fraud was basically being run from the Burj Khalifa. They had one guy who lived in an apartment there in the world's tallest building, who was basically running what on paper was Wirecard's biggest business. Huge amounts of profits. I mean, half a billion in revenue. And it was literally a guy, nothing more to it.
0: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, even on the super cartel side, I think they feel embarrassed about that. They've kind of denied safe harbour to some of these guys. Like the Kinahans, I think, are not living in Dubai yes. the way they once were, for example. But I think their goal would be to eliminate or to cooperate on a few cases so they can, you know, dissuade people from thinking that it is this bar and Tatooine to some extent. But at the same time, the people who actually use it like that keep coming <laughs> so that the business continues, you know?
2: Well, I mean, and let's be fair on the UAE here. You could sort of say the same thing about where we're sitting right now, in the city of London. We went through the crisis. There's been lots of examples of money laundering. And, you know, the most famous is HSBC laundering, huge amounts of money for very nasty Mexican drug cartels. And the UK government quietly going, please don't prosecute them criminally because that would be an awful problem for us. And so you do get this sense that financial centres like the UK and others will occasionally do things to stop money laundering, for appearance's sake, but fundamentally aren't doing so on like a systematic basis.
0: Yeah, actually, in one of the earliest editions of whale hunting, we were trying to describe this idea of dark money. It's, it's kind of like dark matter in the universe. It's everywhere, it's influencing everything around us, but you can't quite see it. And I think maybe we're even reaching a point where there's so much money that exists in this parallel economy that Nobody can really avoid it to some extent you know if you're a big institution it's very hard to have a hundred percent clean clients you know even like the incentives around compliance departments you know no one gets a bonus for digging deeper into a, a client <laughs> so so the the whole system is not incentivized to actually stop this stuff from happening it's only the fear of repercussions and the, and these are hard things to investigate not that many Governments in the world actually try these cross-border kind of cases. So a depressing thought. <laughs> you know, with a story like this, I know as a journalist, it really has a big impact on you and the way you view the world and how you do journalism. So, you know, in your life post Wirecard at the FT, how is it sort of guiding you in what you do? Are you, did it make you more cynical about all companies? Or, <laughs> I mean, I was always pretty cynical about companies. I think one of the reasons why
2: I went after Wirecard was because I was looking for fraud. So you walk into a situation and you see the bad stuff because you're looking for it. Most people aren't wired like that. Most people encountered this company were investors looking for the next big thing. Ping, I think I found it. Made lots of money. Brilliant. What's been great since then, you know, with the book and the documentary and all the publicity, is it means people get in touch. They go, oh, I've come across some bad stuff hang on, I think I know somebody who might be interested in that. So from that perspective, it's been really good. And I think journalistically as well, in some sense it emboldened the Financial Times as an organisation. We're keen to write harder stories, be aggressive on stories. And I think that really helps with the newsroom culture.
0: Yeah, excellent. Obviously, in the Wirecard case, you you were attacked yourself. You know, there was uh, statements made. The German government suggested that they would be investigating the FT for potential manipulation of the markets. There was private investigators probably hacking cases. Has it made you feel a little paranoid in general about working on this kind of thing? And is there a way that you kind of think about things now that's different in a sense to protect yourself? I
2: think I've internalized a lot of the paranoia. Really, Wirecard was this tiny little fintech that claimed to do something to do with payments. It was the European PayPal. It was worth about €4 billion when I first heard of it. And this hedge fund manager says to me, Would you be interested in some German gangsters? So I take a look, and it turns out numbers seem too good to be true. And there are two theories about why that's happening. One is that they're simply making it up. The other, however, is money laundering. And I start to write about them, ask questions, and the story just gets weirder and wilder. People start getting followed around by private detectives. Hackers start trying to bake into people's emails. When we finally do start to get some real evidence... Wirecard accuses the Financial Times of being corrupt. And it turns into this huge battle of reputation in which the German government sides with the company. They start investigating me and my colleagues for criminal conspiracy to manipulate the share price. And as we're doing all of this, we start to realise the guy running everything behind the scenes, Jan Marsalek, seems to be connected to all sorts of nasty people like Russian spies. It does become quite scary. I mean, you think as a journalist, you have a certain sort of protection, right? If your legs get broken, the police are going to care in a totally different way than they do to some sort of esoteric financial crime. But I think there are these different moments. I think one of the worst for me was we discovered there is a network of 30 private detectives running around London trying to catch us talking to our sources. So one of them flips, this ex-copper, lovely guy. And he tells us about this scheme that they've considered but have decided is isn't yet necessary. It's this old gangland trick where they'll put drugs in my car and then call the police. And at that point you think, well, one, what on earth would you say? Hello, officer, funny story. There's this company out to get me. But also, that would blow up your life. Never mind the potential nasty Russian spies we seem to hear are involved. And I think it was only once it was over and kind of all the pressure and everything lifted that I really was aware of how much there had been. It's sort of like suddenly that you come up for air and it's like, oh, wow, what on earth just happened to me? But in terms of professionally, you know, how paranoid do you have to be? Back when we started, this was before I think Signal even existed. We sort of learned all of these things along the way. And it's kind of crazy the extent to which just common practice are sort of the anti-surveillance, anti-hacking measures that have become sort of second nature. So that's what I mean when I say, I think you internalize the paranoia because you've just had to adopt this new way of working.
0: So where can people find Dan McCrum? How can people get in touch if they've got some tips for for you and your colleagues? The
2: Financial Times, we have investigations email at fd.com. LinkedIn is actually a really good way to get in touch. I'm very easy to find Dan McCrum. And it's also one tip, never link your LinkedIn account To your professional email address. Because if you're getting job offers or things like that, you probably don't want your employer to see. And it also makes it very easy to talk quietly to journalists like
0: me. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming, Dan.
2: Thank you for having me along. It's been a blast.
1: That's it for this week. Thanks to Dan for joining us. You can find his book Money Men online and in all good bookshops. The best way to stay up to date with whale hunting is to follow the podcast wherever you like to listen. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter at whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for more. (music) Whale Hunting is a production of Project Brazen. It's hosted by me, Tom Wright, and Bradley Hope. It's produced by Megan Dean and Claire Urban. At Project Brazen, Maríngel González is our project manager. Ryan Ho is the creative director with additional design from Andrea Claridge